everything we don't want them to know. At 11, my granddaughter looks like my daughter did. That slender body, that thin face, the grace with which she moves. When she visits, she sits with my daughter. They have hot chocolate together and talk. The way my granddaughter moves her hands, the concentration with which she does everything, knocks me back to the time when I sat with my daughter at this table and we talked and I watched the grace with which she moved her hands, the delicate way she lifted the heavy hair back behind her ear. My daughter is grown now, married in a fairy tale wedding, divorced, something inside her broken, healing slowly. I look at my granddaughter and I want to save her as I was not able to save my daughter. Nothing is that simple. All our plans, carefully made, thrown into a cracked pile by the way love betrays us. Want. The wasps outside the kitchen window are making that thick, unraveling sound again, floating in and out of the bald head of their nest, seeming not to move while moving. And it has just occurred to me, standing, washing the coffee pot, watching them hang loosely in the air, thin wings, thick, elongated abdomens, sad, down-pointing antennae, that this is the heart's constant project, this simple learning how to hold hopelessness and hope together, to see on the unharmed surface of one the great scar of the other, to recognize both and to make something of both, to desire everything and nothing at once, and to desire it all the time, and to contain that desire fleshly in a body, to wash it and rest it and feed it, to learn its name and from whence it came, and to speak to it, oh, most of all, to speak to it every day, every day saying to one part, well, maybe this is all you get, while saying to the other, go on, Break it open. Let it go. Lead. Here is a story to break your heart. Are you willing? This winter, the loons came to our harbor and died, one by one, of nothing we could see. A friend told me, of one on the shore that lifted its head and opened the elegant beak and cried out in the long, sweet savoring of its life, which if you have heard it, you know is a sacred thing, and for which if you have not heard it, you had better hurry to where they still sing. And believe me, tell no one just where that is. The next morning, this loon, speckled and iridescent, and with a plan to fly home to some hidden lake, was dead on the shore. I tell you this to break your heart, 
by which I mean only that it break open and never close again to the rest of the world. our sermon already happened this morning with Vaikai sharing that testimony of love in the midst of loss and grief was powerful and this just feels like filler after the fact but I hope this offers some comfort as I'm preaching on heartbreak today poet Mary Oliver tells us a story to break our hearts Are we willing? The story she tells in the poem written years ago is the story of Loon's dying of lead poisoning. The story breaks our heart in a new way now. Lead poisoning breaks our hearts in a new way now. We've been hearing the stories of Flint's water crisis, of lead leaching from the water pipes into the drinking and cooking and bathing water, of the people who live in Flint for the past 18 months. We've been hearing about this for months on the local news, but it just went national. A whole city poisoned breaks our hearts. A generation of children whose lives will be forever altered by the poison that now resides in them breaks our hearts. And we know that this was not an unforeseeable accident. We know that this was the consequence of not following laws designed to protect public health. We know this was the consequence of overriding the democratic process. We know this was the consequence of the persistent lie that some lives matter more than others. We know this was the consequence of prioritizing saving money over safety. The anti-corrosive agents that could have been added to the Flint water to prevent 90% of the lead leaching would have cost $100 per day. And now because that crucial step was skipped and people drank and cooked with and bathed in leaded water, for 18 months, while public officials told them it was safe, thousands are poisoned. And now children will grow up with learning difficulties, hearing loss, and many other consequences of lead poisoning. And now it will likely cost hundreds of millions of dollars to repair the damaged infrastructure. And now for months, if not years, we will watch politicians and public officials discuss responsibility and place blame. We will hear the stories of these long-term consequences for years, and our hearts will keep breaking. Mary Oliver closes her poem with, I tell you this to break your heart by which I mean only that it break open and never close again to the rest of the world. And the question is, how will this story keep our hearts broken open? Will the Flint water crisis be crisis enough to transform us and transform our state? Can it make us here in Michigan more democratic, more open-hearted, with hearts broken open to caring, to create change, to create new life? Can our hearts break open 
in ways to make justice and righteousness flow like water. Last October, we had a question box sermon during worship. Everyone gathered had a chance to submit questions to me, and I did my best to answer them during the time in the service when I'm usually preaching a prepared sermon. And you all submitted wonderful questions, and so many that I didn't get to all of them last October. One of the great questions that I didn't have a chance to answer is how do you heal a broken heart? I imagine the writer, whoever you are, didn't mean the heartbreak that comes from awareness of the suffering in the world, the heartbreak of witnessing from a distance the Flint water crisis, the Syrian refugee crisis, and all of the other crises that fill our headlines and news broadcasts. I imagine that the writer wanted to know how to heal a broken heart that comes from individual suffering. We've all been there one way or another. We've experienced the broken heart of divorce or breakups, the broken heart of unrequited love, the broken heart of friends who start, stop being friendly, the broken heart of grief and death, the broken heart of relationships of all sorts that end painfully before we want them to. How do we mend a broken heart? First, we wallow. We feel our sadness, maybe even let, us, let it overwhelm us for a time. We weep, we retreat from the world, we briefly take up residence in the pit of despair. We might live out the cliche from movies and television and sit on our couch in our pajamas with a spoon and a gallon of ice cream. And then, not too much later, we do something else. We feel something else. We return to a favorite hobby. We see a friend. We do the laundry. We go for a walk or go to the gym. We find a new activity here at People's Church or somewhere else and try it out, even though we really don't want to. We return to our routines and we slowly remake a life without our beloved in it. We still feel the loss acutely. Healing from a significant loss takes months, but we sometimes can go hours or a day without thinking about it. We find ourselves smiling and laughing sometimes. We are on a new trajectory. Our heart might never be as good as new, but we can build a life with our ragged, holy heart. And if this isn't how your heartbreak story goes, if it's been five or six months since the relationship or the ended or the other loss and your feelings of loss are still intense, it's time to ask for help. If half a year later, a loss is interfering with your ability to live your life, go to work or school and fulfill your various responsibilities, that, it's when, that is when it's time to seek out help from the professionals. That is when a therapist or counselor can make all the difference. That is not a sign of weakness and shouldn't be a source of shame because sometimes the pit of despair is too deep for us to leave on our own. We need a trained helper to give us the tools we need to escape it. If this is your story 
and you need help connecting with these resources, please talk to me. When we are brokenhearted, we need to remember that we are not alone. We have this community, we have our faith. I haven't spoken with you all much about my understanding of God, and I'm going to do that now. The God that I know is the one who shows up brokenhearted alongside us. I experience God as love and not very powerful, which means that God is always brokenhearted. That's in contrast to a lot of understandings of God, especially in the Abrahamic traditions that say God is all-powerful. For me, God is all-loving, which means that God can't be all-powerful. The world is too broken and heartbreaking for an all-powerful, loving God to be pulling the strings. If there was a powerful, loving God, so much, the world would be so much more just and full of love than it is. So God witnesses the heartbreak and is heartbroken alongside us. Some of my most profound experiences of God, the moments when divine presence is closest and most real for me, are moments of heartbreak. And the moments when dreams for the future are shattered. I felt that, that heartbroken God alongside me when my moments of despair at the end of a relationship. I have felt that heartbroken God alongside me when I've accompanied people in moments of despair in congregational life and in, when I've worked as a hospital chaplain. I felt the heartbroken God alongside us when a family decides to remove life support and let their beloved die. I felt the heartbroken God alongside me when I baptized babies who lived for just a few hours. And I felt it just now. As Vikai told his story and I looked out and saw the tears and the compassion welling up in all of you. That is what God is for me. It is my faith that God is there, brokenhearted alongside us, weeping and crying with us and then cheering us on as we escape our pits of despair. And as Unitarian Universalists, we are a community of diverse believers. Some of us don't believe in God, some of us do, and many of us are agnostic. And those of us who believe in God, believe in God in a lot of different ways, a God with many, many different attributes. So I expect most of you don't agree with my understanding of the holy. And I think that's an amazing thing we have to offer the world. I think this makes for rich conversation and rich community that we can connect across our differences and belief. So what is your theology of heartbreak? How does your belief system offer comfort and strength at the end of a relationship or in other heartbreaking times? How do we live our faith to bring comfort to others when they are heartbroken? I am not the only one who thinks of God as broken. In the Hindu pantheon, there is a goddess named Akhilandashvari. And Akhilandashvari is a form of Parvati, the goddess of love and fertility. 
And Akilandeshvari's name means in Sanskrit, never not broken goddess. She is the always broken goddess. And in some images of her, she's shown broken into several pieces and riding a crocodile. She always rides a crocodile. (laughs) That is a powerful image, a goddess broken apart for the times that we are broken apart. Akilandeshvari is a goddess for our brokenhearted times. And in an article titled, While Being... Why being broken in a pile on your bedroom floor is a good idea. Canadian yoga teacher J.C. Peters writes that Akilandashvari represents the kind of broken that tears apart all the stuff that gets, gets us stuck in toxic routines, repeating the same relationships and habits over and over, rather than div- diving into the scary process of trying something new and unfathomable. She continues, the thing about going through sudden or scary or sad transitions like a breakup is that one of the things you lose is your future, your expectations of what the story of your life was going to become. When you lose that partner or that job or that person, your future dissolves in front of you. And of course, that is terrifying. But look, Akilandashvari says, now you get to make a choice in pieces, in a pile on the floor, with no idea how to go forward. Your expectations of the future are meaningless. Your stories about the past do not apply. You are in flux. You are changing. You are flowing in a new way. And this is an incredibly powerful opportunity to become new again to choose how you want to put yourself back together. Confusion can be an incredible teacher. How could you ever learn if you already had it figured out? After heartbreak, we slowly put our pieces back together, perhaps in a new order. We make our way through the confusion. We learn. We start down a new path with new dreams. And then what? What do we do once we've survived the heartbreak? We return to the world, knowing that more heartbreak is sure to come. We return to the world with our hearts more ragged and jagged with holes, but also stronger, with more wisdom and more clarity about what matters to us. Returning to the world is key. We can make the choice in the aftermath of heartbreak to stay cut off from the world, to retreat and nurse our wounds forever. But that doesn't serve us or the world. To live in this world, to be vulnerable, to be passionate, to care, is to risk a broken heart. British Christian thinker and author C.S. Lewis writes, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything in your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. 
When our heart breaks, we heal and then return to the world. The other option is to live life with an unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable heart. And that's no kind of life at all. To live in this world, to be vulnerable, to be passionate, to care, is to risk a broken heart. And perhaps to live in this world in all its pain and all its promise, in all its triumph and all its tragedy, is to live with a perpetually low-grade broken heart. A broken heart that if it is not broken for ourselves and our relationships, is broken for those we love, is broken for the world around us. When our heart breaks, perhaps it never again closes to the rest of the world. And if we are to live with this perpetually low-grade broken heart, and that might be our calling as people of faith, as people who stand on the side of love, we need to strengthen ourselves, strengthen our hearts, prepare our hearts to get ragged and jagged and full of holes. How do we prepare for this next inevitable heartbreak? For our next encounter with suffering, whether it be ours or the world's or both. Quaker educator Parker Palmer has wisdom for us about so many things, including this. He recommends we do exercises to make our hearts more supple. There are many ways to make the heart more supple, he writes, but all of them come down to this. Take it in. Take it all in. He continues, my heart is stretched every time I'm able to take in life's little deaths without an anesthetic. A friendship gone sour, a mean-spirited critique of my work, failure at a task that was important to me. I can also exercise my heart by taking in life's little joys, a small kindness from a stranger, the sound of a distant train reviving childhood memories, the infectious giggle of a two-year-old as I hide and then leap out from behind cupped hands. Taking all of it in, the good and the bad alike, is a form of exercise that slowly transforms my clenched fist of a heart into an open hand. So in our times of acute heartbreak, may we care for ourselves and ask for the help we need to escape the pit of despair. In the midst of our often heartbreaking world, may we transform closed and clenched hearts into open, perpetually broken hearts with jagged and ragged edges and holes throughout them. And may our hearts break open and never close again to the rest of the world. May it be so. May we make it so. And amen.